0: It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state-of-the-art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs by the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Our guest this week is Anton Largadere. He owns and operates Virginia Motorod Workstut in Charlottesville, Virginia. He specializes in transmission and final drive repair, but also functions as a full service workshop for all BMW motorcycles. His technical reference website, largeadare.com is an off referred to database that covers both classic airhead and late model BMW mechanical and electrical systems. It's a fantastic reference site that he keeps updated on a regular basis. We've got links to both those sites in the about section of this podcast. Now. I first met Anton back in 2015 when he diagnosed an oil pressure problem on a monolever R80GS. You'll hear about that in this interview. And since then, I've found him to be a trusted resource on all things Airhead related. Our conversation engaging, enlightening, and informative, I think. And I hope you'll find it the same. It's Anton Larjadere on the Airheads 247 podcast. Anton larger uh, on the line. And Anton, first off, uh, I pronounced your name right, yes? You did. Okay, good. So uh, I'm curious, what's the origin of your last name?
1: It's it's Swiss. Um, Switzerland has four official languages, uh, One of the fourth of which is Romance, which is spoken by a very small subset of the population down in the uh, southeast corner. But that is the area that my family comes from, and my father came over from Switzerland uh, when he was in his 20s. And uh, we go back there occasionally, but yes, that corner of Switzerland is where the name originates.
0: Interesting. So uh, your father was the first generation to settle here in the U.S. Uh, from your family? Yes. Okay. Uh,
1: well, actually, let me, t- let me walk that back. a bit. Yeah. There was another family member who came over as a child around 1870. And so there are other larger dares, uh in this country who came from that branch. Um, and we have communicated a little bit, but we um, we really don't know them at all.
0: Wow, okay. Well, that's an interesting uh, little backstory there. You know, I- I'm a little bit dyslexic, so I always struggle with spelling your name. And I always, no matter how, time, how many times I've done it, I still have to go to the website to make sure, your website, I have to make sure I've spelled it correctly. So I'm glad to know what the origin of that is. Um, you may or may not remember, Uh, we first met back in 2015 or 2016. I have a R80GS that I sent you because I was having an issue, uh, with my oil light that would not extinguish. And
1: I remember that. Good.
0: Okay. So the backstory is, you know, I'm, I'm a competent parts replacer. Let's put it that way. I'm not a good diagnostics mechanic, but I can replace parts with the best of them. So I struggled with finding out what the issue was. Testing the uh, oil filter, making sure I had the shims right, the o ring, uh, checking the oil pressure switch, you know, the basic stuff I could do in my garage without really digging into it. So I got to the end of my rope and realized I needed some expert help. Uh, I sent the bike to you to check that out and you found that the oil pressure relief valve tucked in the uh, timing chest was the issue. Now, I'm not an expert, but that is a failure that I've not really heard of. Were you surprised to find that was the issue, and, and have you seen that before?
1: I was absolutely surprised to find that. I was trying to think how difficult it was, you know, what uh, what the route was towards finding that. I'd never seen it before, and I personally have never seen it since. I think we found it just by um, just some good old, like, you know, thinking, well, hey, if you got oil here and just, you know, sort of followed it around, and eventually— Pulled the cover off, and I, I think we found some parts down there. However, at the time that I found that, I then went online and looked around, and it wasn't the first time in, in the history of Airheads this had ever happened. Uh, but it was, certainly wasn't anything I knew about before that, and it hasn't isn't anything that I've seen since.
0: Well, that gives me great pleasure to know that I had such an anomaly in a in a failure, <laughs> but. I was glad you found it quickly, and I remember when you emailed me the the picture uh, of what what had gone wrong there, and so that was quickly rectified, and I should say, you know, when the bike was there, uh, I figured I was in for a dime, in for a dollar there, so you went through the transmission, uh, and also, I think you set the, who's the head guy you use? Was it Randy Long?
1: I do light head work here in the shop. I'll do valves and guides, basically. And if I need seats replaced, I'll send them to Randy.
0: Okay, yeah. I send, I,
1: send this, I send the heads to Randy for seats, and then they come back and I do the rest of the work. And I can usually have a pretty quick turnaround that way. If he does everything, then you're in a long line of, uh, of work that he always has because he's, he's in such demand on stuff that's not just BMWs. But if it's just seats, he'll usually squeeze that in, get it back to me. I can do the valves and guides, and then the job can get turned around.
0: Yeah, I think that was the case with my heads on the, on the ADGS, and I think you also resealed up the final drive for me. I'm, I'm happy to report uh, all these years later, uh, everything's really uh, going great. I rode the bike this morning, so all's good.
1: Good, although five years isn't isn't really a very high bar to reach for problems <laughs> after a lot of work.
0: No, no, I guess you're right. I hadn't thought about it that way. Let's uh, turn back the clock a little bit. Tell me about the first Airhead motorcycle you bought, and what was the allure and attraction?
1: Well, I had gotten a K75 as my first BMW, my first serious motorcycle uh, in 1995, and I had been, I think, spending some time on the GS list, uh, the old Micopeak GS list, and I was just interested in picking up a GS. When I had been test riding bikes before buying my K75, I I'd ridden an R100 GS that was in great shape, and I thought it was just a phenomenal bike. I think it was more expensive than, than my K75 was. And so the, the thought of that super easy-to-ride bike had, had never really left me. And in either the very late 90s or maybe 2000, I bought a crashed uh, GSPD from Rob Libert down in North Carolina. And I fixed a bunch of stuff and repainted it uh, Ducati yellow and proceeded to put 100,000 miles on that bike and take it up to the Arctic Circle or up to the Arctic Ocean, actually, um, and out to the Rockies and all sorts of stuff. But I had a lot of really uh, a lot of really good times on that bike. It got stolen Uh 2005, I think. But um, I have another one because I think a PD is just a terrific bike to have.
0: Wow. Stolen, never to be recovered?
1: Never to be recovered. Not a trace. I have a I have a suspicion that it was sent to South America.
0: Good grief. What did you pay for it back then? Uh, it was crashed. How bad was the damage?
1: The tank was cracked. The sub, I think the rear subframe was bent. Crash bars. I think I had to straighten the front rhubarb, but I think I did reuse the one that was on the bike. I think the wheels and forks were fine. It had been totaled by the insurance company, and Rob just wanted out of it.
0: So, I mean, you probably got it for a thousand dollars or less, I would imagine.
1: No, I don't think it was that little. Oh, I mean, it okay. Was a, it was. It was a. It was a running bike, but the yeah, the bags. Uh, the bag mounts were bent, and the bags were. At least one of them was probably smashed. You know it needed it needed a bunch of stuff, and you know, tank and so forth is money. I tried to fix that tank. Nylon is very difficult to repair. People can do it. I can't. And uh, I remember after a so I wasn't filling the tank up all the way because if I got up to the cracks, uh, it would leak out. and I remember a very hmm. embarrassing moment pushing this bike down the road to a gas station. And I'm thinking, here I am on the, the one BMW with the largest tank ever produced. <laughs> and, and I have to push this bike to the gas station. I was like, I hope nobody I know sees
0: <laughs> Oh, the irony. Yeah. <laughs> so you said you put uh, went on to put uh, about 100,000 miles on that bike. Did you have some of the, I mean, obviously when you were going through it, you probably knew some of the preventative things to do what was going to come up maintenance-wise and the failure points. But during its tenure, did you have to attend to some of the... What were some of the typical things you had to attend to during your ownership on that bike?
1: Well, first, to put it in perspective, I was working an engineering job uh, up in New York, and I had no idea that I was going to get into uh, professional work on this. And so I wasn't super deeply immersed in the technical side yet. I I was maintaining my own bike, and I was active in tech circles, but that was about it. That bike did not have the circlip, and I killed the transmission on it by getting water in it. And worse than that, I didn't even know the water was in there, uh, and it froze. I remember a winter where I couldn't shift the bike until the transmission warmed up. I was like, well, that sounds like a problem. (laughs) And ultimately, the, um, the transmission suffered the the failure that any waterlogged transmission or transmission with the front output shaft bearing failure uh, suffers, which is, you know, catastrophic destruction at the front of the output shaft. Uh, I got a new transmission in there. On a side note, I took the transmission out and took it to our dealer who destroyed it trying to open it because he had no his tech had no idea how to open an airhead transmission. And I took it to Tom Cutter and he looked at He looked for like one and a half seconds at the parts that I brought and immediately realized that the person who opened it had no idea how to open an airhead transmission and had broken it, basically. But I got a used transmission, put it in there, and uh, I still have the output shaft from that. I think I, I use it as a tool for something. That was the only thing that really went wrong with that bike. I did have a charging system issue at one point. I had a rotor go bad. And I know now from experience that those cylinder heads could certainly have used work. They were making the noises that, that that generation of cylinder head with extremely wide clearances on the exhaust valves makes. It's basically a clanking that you can't tune out. It's not valve play. It's not rocker end play. It's the fact that the valves are rattling around in the guides. And it, ha- it certainly had that.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the water log transmission. Uh, I've been guilty of that. In my case, it was because of deep water crossings here in the Ozarks uh, of Arkansas, and I'm pretty sure water got in uh, over the boot on the Speedo cable. Was that probably what ha- how that happened with you, or how, how did it get waterlogged?
1: I know I took that bike through water up to the front fender. Yeah. When I was working up in New York, I would just go out after work and just ride and ride. I rode I was putting on like 45,000 miles a year at that point, and uh, I would just go play. And I found this old abandoned, like, quarry or something. I was tearing around there with this other guy, and we'd go through these water crossings. And, I mean, there were times that I was, like, full on the throttle and, you know, waters over the cylinder heads, and I I have a fair suspicion that that was it. (laughs) Yeah. Yep.
0: Been there, done that. Uh, I think I even sent one to you uh, from an old bike of mine and you opened it up and said, you know, somebody was taking a bath inside of here and we pretty much just, I just told you to keep it.
1: I do remember that one too. The the damage was, was severe. You and I talked about it and I was like, it's, you know, I can fix it, but you know, here's what else you can do with that much money.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I want to backtrack. What uh, you said, you were working in engineering in New York. What was your, obviously you're a full-time mechanic now with um, Virginia Motorod Werkstatt. So what were you doing prior to that?
1: Well, I'm a BSME and out of school, I started working for UASA Exide, which makes motorcycle batteries, among other things. And I worked at the corporate office for a little while, and then I went to be the assistant process engineer at the plant that made the motorcycle batteries, which also happened to be in Redding, where the corporate headquarters were. And it was there that I got interested in riding. And while I worked there, I uh, bought my K75. Uh, Then I took another job as the process engineer for a a competitive battery company up in New York. I was working for C&D. Uh, we made motive power batteries. So these are electric forklift batteries like you have in warehouses and stuff. And uh, and while I was there, we also got into some telecom backup. But there were other plants uh, within the company that did the lion's share of that. And We were big on motive power.
0: That's interesting to note. You were already sort of in the motorcycle industry, uh, in a roundabout way, before. So, is it fair to say the experience you had with taking your transmission to the unnamed BMW dealer uh, and subsequently, you know, having to farm the workout is that what got you started on the path you're on now?
1: I would. I wouldn't say so. I, I think the way to frame that is it was probably an eye opener to me that working within the dealer network. Can't be the solution to all your problems. When I started as a BMW owner with that K75, you know, I thought, well, you know, you got BMW corporate out here and their network of dealers, and they can simply take care of stuff. And as time goes on, you realize that these dealers really are independent; they are franchise holders, but they're not necessarily doing stuff exactly the way corporate would want them to, and they're not acting on behalf of corporate; they're act- acting on behalf of themselves. And that's why you can take a bike with a problem to one dealer, and he tells you to go Pound Sand, and you take it to another dealer. They're like, "Oh yeah, we got that under warranty." You know, for the exact same problem. And it's just that they work differently, and they have different relationships with corporate and the uh, the regional representatives who've had different official titles over the years, um, field service engineers, et cetera. So my experience there. Just certainly helped me realize that all dealerships are not created the same, and they are not necessarily the the single answer to everything.
0: I, and I guess at some point you had to have a discussion uh, with your family or you know whoever else and say, look, um, you know, I want to do this on my own. So how did how did you manage that transition from you know going from a full time job with a, a battery company? To then opening uh, your own shop. I, I imagine you were doing both for a while, or how, how did that how did that work?
1: Well, it all coincided with the move to Virginia. I was living up in Pennsylvania when I was working for the battery companies, and I met my wife actually at a at a BMW club meeting. She rode an 1100 GS, and we started spending a lot more time together. I'd be down at her place in Maryland on weekends. And then I'd have 200 plus miles to ride early Monday morning before I get back up to New York. And then I'd come back down again on Friday. And once we sort of realized that, you know, we were going to stay together and I was hitting the five-year point with my company, at what at which point my 401k would be vested and I was sort of free to go without penalty. I left that job and we started looking at... You know what we were going to do next. She wanted to get out of the D.C. area. I did, and we sort of did stuff. You know, for a year and sort of traveled and house hunted and stuff like that while she was still working up there. And then in 2004, we moved down to Virginia. But even then, I was thinking that I was just going to you know go back to having a, an engineering job. A local friend had down here in Charlottesville had set me up with the idea for an interview with a her employer. That would have been a perfectly fine technical job to have. And then my wife and I realized that our own needs as motorcyclists weren't really that well met in Charlottesville because although we had two dealers sort of near us, they were well over an hour away. And a lot of people were going through the area, especially traveling on weekends, that simply had no options. And with dealerships being closed on Monday, someone who came through on a Saturday afternoon and needed a clutch cable or a set of brake pads or something like this, they'd be out of luck until Tuesday morning and their whole long weekend is gone. So it first started out with just sort of having a couple of parts around that, um know, that we needed for our own bikes, you know, for my Airhead and my K-bike and her R1100. And then we just sort of went through it and we just said, you know what, maybe I could just do this. And she was okay with that. And that's sort of how it's been. I can't say it's the best decision I've ever made, (laughs) but, um, no, really, really it's, I mean, financially, it's not the best decision I've ever made. If I'd stayed in engineering, you know, in engineering management somewhere, I'm sure i'd be uh, a bit happier when i looked at the bank account but at the same time this has given me a lot of freedom at home a lot of flexibility with our kids and um, it's been very rewarding
0: yeah i can can Um, imagine um i first became a regular customer with boxer two valve a few years ago when refreshing an r90s william and edward plam's video repair series well that was a go-to reference It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer Two valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers. So the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast, with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m., and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are Airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. And so tell me how the work you've done there has evolved over the years. This might be a gross generalization here, but, you know, when I sort of became aware of you as an independent mechanic, it seemed as though you were kind of specializing in transmissions and, and final drives. Now, I know that wasn't all you did back then, and that's not all you do now, but was that sort of, did you see that as an area of focus for you, or how how has it evolved?
1: Well, that has always been an area of focus. You're right. To, to flesh out the technical qualification side a bit more, after I moved down here, um, I had been interested in some vintage racing, and Devin Batley of Batley Cycles in Maryland, who was the local dealer for my at the time, girlfriend and her parents in Gaithersburg, he was interested in supporting me as a racer. So I had a good relationship with all the people at Batley Cycles. And when I decided to get going as an independent mechanic, it was natural that I would use uh, them as my part source because everyone in this business has to buy parts from a dealership. Dealerships buy from BMW. But one of the values that you get as a franchise dealer is that you have exclusive rights to BMW parts system, and so independents have to buy from dealers. And a year or so later, they said, hey, Anton, we need more technicians on our books. We don't necessarily need more technicians working here all the time, but to meet the staffing requirements that BMW puts on us as a result of our sales volume, need to add one master tech. And they said, would you be that master tech? And I said, sure. So they sent me to school, and this was in the, like, 06, 07, 08 time period. They sent me to school for a few years, and during the busy season, I spent a lot of time up there working, and I would stay with my wife's parents, who were still in the area. And then I'd come back home and work on on something here. So the um, the interesting thing there is that when I got to service school or working on transmissions, I was already very experienced with those transmissions, and it made for a couple of kind of humorous moments in school. I simply knew the subject very well. Uh, Tom Cutter and I had spent a bunch of time together, and he'd been doing these for a long time. He showed me a lot of things about those, and then the BMW repair manuals are actually very good if you know how to follow them, and I, you know, learned a lot from those. And when I got to service school, the, the treatment was actually pretty light compared to what I was normally doing. Final drives, sort of the same way. I was um, I was working on them not as much, and it was very good to uh, to have the BMW curriculum uh, in me for that, especially for the new Evo final drives that were coming out. So yes. Especially then, there's a lot of focus. I was fixing a lot of R1100 transmissions uh, that were skipping in second and third gear. Uh, there were times when I just had them lined up against the wall, and I'd all the gear sets out at uh, at Bruno's being machined, and uh, you know I'd get boxes of this stuff back and do them. And that work sort of comes and goes, and there hasn't been a lot of it lately because honestly, most of those bikes have either been fixed, or they're never a problem, or they're scrapped. So. Yeah, the emphasis has gone away from the non-airhead transmissions just because there's less of that work, although there is still some. Uh, Final Drive's done more on, if anything, uh, more work on the Evos than a lot of dealerships have, and although the latest Final Drive design, which is used in the K16 and the water-cooled Boxer, is totally different. And very reliable. I actually have one of those here to open up just to see how they built it. So yeah, that's an evolving thing. Uh, if we're going to stick with the airhead stuff, there really isn't that much airhead final drive work compared to uh, compared to the later bikes.
0: Yeah, well, that's good to know and not surprising. You know, probably an- anecdotally speaking, and you know, a lot of owners would say some of the later model R series bikes, those final drives have been problematic. Um, You know, I remember when I came down to pick up my bike uh, from you uh, back in 2016, uh, you were also, you had mentioned, you know, the need for technicians and other dealers around there. And I remember you telling me you were doing a lot of work uh, at the time for police municipalities and servicing their uh, police bikes as well. And was Is Morton's, is one of the dealers nearby you that uh, you're sort of referencing there? So were you picking up maybe some work from from them and, and some others? They were, it, was it just a case of they didn't have enough people to do it, they didn't want to do it, or they'd just rather send it to you?
1: Well, first of all, Morton's is a fantastic dealership that um, they've been around for a long time. Uh, they are my current parts source. I have a great re- uh, great relationship with all the people there. They've been really good to me about the parts and uh, and even you know technical issues that come up. The only thing wrong with Morton's is that they're an hour and 20 minutes away from here. And so people who need something dealt with in Charlottesville, especially if it's a bike that needs to be dropped off and then picked up later, your Charlottesville resident's looking at six hours of driving to take his bike there Come back home again, go back and get it, and come back home again. And this was true for the police too. So I I certainly wasn't handling the police work exclusively, but I was getting a lot of bikes in here for you know routine stuff, tires. The officers around here actually really liked to go up to Morton's, and so they certainly you know, kept doing that. I think they were on the clock and and (laughs) nice riding through the countryside and all that. Sure. But I kept a lot of stuff here that they needed because sometimes they just need something right then and there. Um, You know, crash bars on their bikes are kind of a wear item. And uh, there were some certain bolts that held them on and the wiring. I'm pretty picky about the wiring on the police bikes. And I've usually had to reinvent a lot of stuff that I see on the bikes you know, when I, when I see a bike for the first time. And so I ended up doing, you know, a lot of wiring, uh, buying the special BMW terminals and stuff that they want for the police bikes stuff just to make everything just right.
0: Yeah. You know, I know as a side note, uh, I have a friend with the 1100 GS and he wanted to get, uh, the wiring and set up. So the bike would run with the kickstand down, which is, I think is a police feature. And we ordered the wiring kit from BMW for that and installed it on his bike, you know, in my garage at my house. And that was one thing I noticed, just how bare and exposed the wires were just for that setup. And I thought, boy, you know, this really doesn't seem too hardy a setup. So kind of understand what you're saying there. Just a, that's a very limited experience. But I understand what you're saying about uh, the wiring stuff.
1: Remember, on, on the on the RTs that were used for the police bikes, then all of that stuff is completely buried. But also on those RTs of the generation that would use that harness, which was only the 1100 generation, those bikes were never built as police bikes. They were modified to be police bikes. And as a result, the wiring is absolutely butchered on them. It wasn't until the 1200 RT in 2005 that BMW was producing authority bikes right off the line with totally different harnesses, totally different features, you know, the radio box, all all of the wiring that's a disaster on the 1100s and 1150s is from the factory uh, on these. It's night and day difference.
0: Yeah, well, that makes sense because it did seem like it was just kind of shoehorned in there. And, yeah, as you mentioned, when a, a true authority bike, that probably wouldn't have been the case. Uh, last thing I want to ask you about as far as the shop goes... Getting back to airhead stuff, what are you doing mostly airhead-wise uh, in the shop these days? Component repair, general repair? Do you are you on to restorations and customer builds? Uh, what what are you seeing in the shop airhead-wise these days?
1: Right now, sort of heavy on the customer build thing. Uh, I do have people come in for service, um, and I have a transmission or two or three that are over um, in the bench work area, but I have a that that's been here for a while for basically a complete restoration. I have two R100GSs that are here for complete going through. I'm not going to call them restorations because they're not being refinished. They're not being repainted, repowder-coated, polished. It's none of that stuff, but they're getting you know, good charging systems and valve work, and make sure the circlip's in there and all that stuff. Sort of real real top to bottom, you know, four or five thousand dollar, you know, overhaul kind of things.
0: Man, yeah. That sounds great. I'd love to see one of those bikes when you get finished with them. Uh, let's move on to another topic here. We talked about your workshop. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about, uh, and I know this is something uh, I, I visit it quite frequently, and it, I've seen you're, you're expanding on it, uh, the largedare.com tech page. So we don't need to really delve into all the specifics in there, but maybe you can tell me again sort of the history and impetus uh, of doing that. It's a, it's a great resource.
1: Well, thanks. It started out... Wow. I mean, back back when I was writing my K-75 a lot, I remember building my early pages on that with AOL Press, which was an <laughs> oh, early HTML editor that AOL sent out um, that you could use. And, you know, I'm a technically-minded guy, and I'm curious about stuff, and I can write well. And so I just ended up writing a bunch of stuff. You know, th- this was back when I, the, the IBM WR big list was massive and, you know, early days of the web and all of this. And so it was great to sort of jump on that and uh, and get a lot of good information out there. As time went on, I found that I used it to document stuff that I hadn't known before and hadn't needed to figure out. And it was as much a future reference for myself as it was for anyone else's benefit. You know, if I run across something that I've never seen before and I end up saying, you know what, well, how does this really work? And and then I end up looking up all the parts and then I realize that, you know, these parts changed in this year because of this and and this is now not compatible with this any longer. You know, this is the stuff that trips people up and it'll trip me up in the future if I don't write it down and have a way to reference it. And a lot of the stuff that's on my website is really just that. It's me documenting strange stuff that I found out so that I or anyone else doesn't have to learn the same thing all over again in the future.
0: Yeah. Well, on behalf of, on behalf of everybody, let me just say, th- thank you again. Um, I- I've got it bookmarked and I'm on there on a, on a regular basis. Hey, I have to ask you, maybe kind of as a humorous note, but also somewhat seriously, uh, did you find that there was any redundancy or were you surprised at some things you were putting up on there that weren't on Snowbum's BMW tech page? I mean, that, is famous for being, you know, thorough to the point of being overthrow sometimes. But uh, were you surprised, or you said, "Gosh, you know, I can't believe this isn't isn't on there, or hasn't been covered," or you know, I know you're referenced on his on his page. So tell me that sort of relationship there.
1: I explain things in my own way, and definitely some of the things I've written t- can legitimately be considered an alternative explanation to something. All sorts of people have written about torque and horsepower, but the prevailing explanations of torque and horsepower don't seem to answer many of the questions that certain people have. And so when I wrote that article, which is the one that just pops into my head right now uh, when you mention that, when I wrote that article, I was out to provide the, the information in my own words. And I knew that it wasn't going to be the right explanation for everyone. And so I put links on there to a number of other articles, you know, hey, if this doesn't resonate for you, try this other one. He's pretty good, too. Um, and so a lot of that stuff, or maybe even all of it, is definitely the way I want to describe it, even knowing that that wasn't going to work well for everyone. It's how I think, and anyone else who thinks the way I do can understand it, and I've certainly had a lot of positive feedback on it. Another example might be my um, the oil filter canister depth issue
0: yes that's Um, a good one
1: and i've and i've gotten some pushback on this because i very clearly say on there that you should target you know this range of dimensions you know, make up your own mind where you want to be and then here's how you figure it out and if you look at the math that i the sample math that i provide for it the sample math is targeting a dimension that's not anything that i recommend and people look at the sample sheet and think, oh, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to you know, look at these numbers. And all that sample is there for is an example of how to calculate it based on your own numbers. And I've gotten a lot of pushback from some people on the MOA forum about why are you putting this misleading information out there. And my attitude is I want to teach people, I want to show people how to figure this out for themselves. And I'm making it very clear that this example does not match your numbers, but this is how you figure it out. And so some people might get uh, led down the wrong path by it. But if you if you read everything, I think you're going to get it right. So that might be one of the more risky ones as far as me wanting to do it my own way.
0: Well, it I, I, it makes a lot of sense. And let me just say, uh, it's probably only misleading if you don't understand it.
1: <laughs> there we go. That's a great way of putting
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> so... All right, very well said. And and once again, great job with that tech page. Folks, if you're not familiar with it or you need to refamiliarize yourself with it, it's largeare l-a-r-g I A D-E-R dot Uh, Let's move on to a new topic and one more big topic, and then I got a few kind of quick fire questions for you. Uh, Tell me about your experience and interaction on Adventure Rider. You're a regular contributor there, chiming in on all sorts of things. Um, I know it seems to be kind of a hangout, online hangout for you, not just motorcycle stuff, but, you know, any of the different forums there, so... Tell me sort of how you got in when you joined, how you got involved and in, in, uh, what it's meant meant to you over the years.
1: Well, I, I was in it fairly early, but interestingly enough, my wife has a lower member number than mine. Uh, she was on it way, way early, but didn't really stick with it. It really took a lot of the traffic um, that had been on things like the Micah Peak GS list, um, which right now has like one message a year kind of thing. And brought a lot of people together. There's a there's really a lot of great places there and of course uh, sorry, great people there. And the the topics, of course, in the forum format are archived and much easier to access than they were in a mailing list uh, format. Um, that said, I have a number of people on Ignore on Adventure Rider, and it's not because it's not because I don't like them or anything, but I very aggressively curate my own experience there. And I don't go there to be annoyed by people. You know, I I go there just to, you know, read interesting stuff and have pleasant conversations with people about things. And if someone's just continually abrasive or even just, you know, endlessly posting things of little to no value, um, it just makes my, my experience uh, a bit better if they're not
0: there. Uh, I, I, let me just jump in and say that you phrased that so well, The how the ignore list curates your experience there. That, uh, that was really well said. Uh, Very judicious use of words there. And you're not alone. Uh, You're not alone there. Uh, The Airheads Forum on there is, like you say, it's really active. There's uh, a lot of great contributors there, including yourself. Uh, We visited with uh, Bud Proven, uh, who's known as Airhead Wrench on there, uh, who's also a contributor. So, you know, let me just say, you know, for a lot of uh, the members on there who are uh, amateur mechanics, parts replacers. It's great to have, uh, your commentary and, and insight on there. And I'm glad, uh, glad you get something out of it too. All right. So here's sort of some quick fire, uh, questions. Don't think these are one word answers, but this is sort of a list I've been asking everybody and, and, uh, getting, getting their answers. So, uh, tell me your best or worst roadside repair and, or breakdown. So some some repair you made that was, you know, kind of a MacGyver thing and or a breakdown that was uh, catastrophic and had you questioning your life and existence.
1: Well, on my R100 GSPD, I had had a loose swing arm pivot. I don't think it was anything I'd ever taken apart. I remember riding back from the square root rally and I suddenly felt that the back end was loose and it wasn't the wheels. uh, It was the, the swing arm pivot. And I remember just pitching the bike over on the side on the side of the road and getting myself going again. I don't remember the details, but I do know that that issue resurfaced. And of course, this was, again, all long before I was doing serious work on these bikes. And the second time I was up in New York doing my usual just riding around after work, and it was like nine o'clock at night, and I was going to grab a slice of pizza from the next town over or something like that. And I'd been out for 150 miles already, and I felt that same wiggling in the final drive and I could see that, that was loose and I ended up, I put two Allen wrenches together, like a, I don't know, like an eight and a four or something. I could fit them into that 12 millimeter hex on the fixed pivot and thread it back in and rode down to a, uh, rode down to a part store and bought a half inch ratchet and a, a set of, uh, 12, 14, 17 millimeter half inch drive Allen's, which I didn't have and thought that was a great thing to have. And, cranked on it and went home and cleaned it and locked tight it did all that stuff and that issue simply never came back
0: wow that's great and so, so it, you so you did the if I'm understanding that right you did the allen uh wrench math in your head and thought I can cram two of these in here to equal 12 mill- millimeters and that did the trick
1: it, it was it was enough to thread it in to the point that I could ride uh I could ride somewhere else I've done a lot of little roadside stuff for myself and for customers um, can't really say that any of them was the best I'm really reaching here to think about anything that turned out really badly uh, although let me say along those lines that I've pretty much given up doing on-site service and repair for customers because you never have what you need and those things are almost considered you know roadside repairs because you just you just have a bunch of stuff in in your pocket or whatever and you go there and hope that hope that you have the tools you need. You know, my tools live in these, you know, 1,500-pound roll-around cabinets that they don't move. So um, anytime I go somewhere, I'm throwing a bunch of stuff into a, a, a cloth bag, and there's always a limit to what you can take, and you can never take the right stuff. So, So I've given up doing that.
0: We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say it's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot. But I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you are also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.BMWMOA.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You will receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast. We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support. Tell me the one design change um, in the Airhead model range, uh, and that's to include 1970 to 95. One design change, engineering change. If you could go back in time uh, on those bikes and tell the engineers, please, this should never have happened. What, what, what's one of those you would do?
1: Well, it's it's easy to it's easy to point to any of the the classic failures. You know, the eighty one to eighty four valve seats, or the omission of the circlip, or you know, can you please just make a better alternator rotor or something like that? But you know. Those are weaknesses, but I, I wouldn't call any of them like fundamentally flawed decisions from the ground up. And so the the one that stands out, it isn't actually one that affects me that much because I, just, I deliberately stay away from it. But I think that those engineers that engineered the first rear hydraulic brake on those late 70s twin shocks, I think there are people all over the world... Who really wish that they had just stuck with a drum? And BMW figured out they went back to drums and stayed with drums for the for the rest of the uh, the airhead production. But that system is just awful.
0: I, you it, know, that I'm glad you mentioned that because that does seem like an anomaly in the in the design thing. I mean, what really what was so what's so difficult about uh, a rear uh, hydraulic disc brake? Where did they go wrong?
1: Yeah, it, it's that bad. You go to remove the swing arm, and you, got, and you have all these pipes in the way, and I get the allure of a disc brake, and I think BMW felt some pressure from the competition. You know, hey, they've got rear discs. We need to have rear discs. And it's a nice, easily modulatable brake. Uh, the wear parts are very discreet. You replace the rotor and the pads separately, and you don't, you know, you don't wear out an entire wheel Um, there's lots of good stuff to be said for a disc, but there's nothing good to be said for that disc.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. And I think, as you mentioned that they went back to the drum break, uh, for the, pretty much the duration, uh, after that really says a lot. Uh, all right. Your Mount Rushmore of, uh, classic airhead BMWs, again, sticking in the 70 to 95. What are the four you would carve up on a mountain as the premier bikes of that era?
1: All right. Not going to make any friends on this one, I can tell. <laughs> um, the first one, I'm just going to go in chronological order. Okay. Here. The first one is going to be the R75/5. Summer of '69, this thing entered production, and it was the first high-performance modern airhead. Uh, you know, with the Slash Five, we had we were back to telescopic forks. We had a pressure-fed oil system. We had a, it was a totally redesigned motor, and This was a very, very good bike, Um, and at the time, people knew it, but I think there are probably enough people whose motorcycling experience uh, post-dated that that they don't really understand how good it was. The the Japanese were certainly there, and uh, and the Brits were there, and the people who didn't have the money for a 75-slash-5 ended up getting something else because they were certainly more affordable. But... That really, in many ways, was the bike to have, and it set the it set the groundwork for for all of that, all of that range that you're talking about. And it was the it was the forerunner for every every naked airhead that you see going down the road with bags strapped to it and accessories bolted onto it. I mean, that was the first one. And yeah, there are people who like the R sixty slash five instead. You know, like. Matt Parkhouse and Susanna have you know, put billions of miles in those things around the world. Um, I have a less charitable view of those. I I think the 50s and 60s should all be melted down and turned into 75. <laughs> but but I have a November 69 production 75 slash five, and I love it. It's it works well. It goes well. And when you look at it in its historical context, you know it was the first of of many, I mean, BMWs looked like that for 15 years.
0: That's right. Well, well said, well said.
1: So my next one, of course the R90s and the 77 R100 RS got a lot of, uh, get a lot of press, but I'm I'm gonna skip those. Okay. And I'm gonna go another year too, I think, to the R100 RT.
0: 79 that came out.
1: Yes, so two years, I was right. Yeah. Um, When the R100RS came out, there was a lot of hype about the wind tunnel tuned and so forth. But when the RT came out, you simply saw them everywhere. And BMW, since that day, BMW has never not sold an RT. From 79 till the 2021 1150 RTs, they have never not sold an RT. They revolutionized the touring market with that, or at least the touring market in that segment. you know the, the, gold wings, the Gold Wings were around about from that time period, but BMW certainly found their niche um, when they launched the RT. They have not made RSs every year. They certainly have not made Ss every year. They have never missed a year making an RT. It defined, it defined touring BMWs.
0: Well said. You know, I had never thought about it like that. Uh, you're 100% right. Okay, number three.
1: The G-slash-S, it's not a fantastic bike, but along the same lines as uh, as the RT, here's another model that eventually defined an entire market segment. Um, I'm actually going to let the G-slash-S do triple duty here. Um, the G-slash-S not only ushered in the what we now call the adventure bike market, but it also ushered in the whole modern range of airheads that started in 1981 with the lighter clutch and the Nicosil cylinders. And yes, unfortunately for a few years there, the really bad valve metallurgy, Um, but most of the 81 improvements were very, very solid electronic ignition. It ushered in all that and also ushered in the single sided swing arm, which when I got into BMWs, everyone I spoke to considered that a BMW trademark. They're like, Oh yeah, it's a BMW. It's got the single side swing arm. Historically speaking, it didn't exist before 1981. But it has become so identified with BMW that I think it's worth uh, it's worth noting there. Well said. So the G/S does does some um, some triple duty there. It brings the 81 on improvements, which were the only things that uh, that kept that whole line of motorcycles viable at all. It brought the single side swing arm, which ended up in place on every BMW until the F650 style uh, came out, and it launched the adventure touring market. Yeah, that... BMW has not missed a year of making a GS. Although for the U.S. market, my understanding is that in 1987 there were only two bikes.
0: Huh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. And you know, you bring up a good point about the uh, monolever rear end. There, I mean, so often the uh, the G/S and, and rightly so, as you mentioned, uh, the forebearer for the whole adventure bike and the and the GS series. Uh, but that's I don't want to say an underlooked uh, aspect of that bike, but one that uh, folks don't always historically uh, appreciate. So well said, uh, given the GS some uh, its props there. Okay, number four.
1: Number four is the R100 GS because BMW took everything that was wrong with the r 80 GS and fixed it and. The R100 GS, even though it's a little bit less off-road worthy under certain circumstances, but, but not others, it's actually not that straightforward. Even though it can be considered a bit less of an off-road bike, the direction it was going is the direction the GS line has gone ever since then. After that bike, the GS has always got 19-inch rims. And then starting later on, when the, um, when the liquid-cooled bikes came out, they got 170-width rear tires. They got street-sized tires on them. The GS has certainly become more of a road-going bike over time, and the improvements made from the G/S to the GS uh, in 1988 were along these same lines. The weaknesses got fixed, but the weight went up a little bit, but it was considered worth it. You know, The rear subframe needed to be stronger. Stronger's heavier. It got a bit heavier, but it got better. Uh, the GS got tubeless tires with spoked wheels. This was, you know, this was pretty groundbreaking. Yes, those rims are pretty heavy. If you ever pick one up, but given the choice, oh my gosh, tubeless every time.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. So,
1: so that that bike has moved has moved the GS. That started to move the GS line uh, to where it is now.
0: So, and course,
1: as we know, the GS is a phenomenally popular bike. Just e- even for pure street use, look down the. The roster of the Iron Butt Rally that's going on right now, our 1200 GS is all over the place.
0: Yep. So, would you maybe to dissect that a little bit more uh, on the Paralever uh, Series GS? Would you have which one would you put up there? Then would it be the 88 to 90 with uh, which maintain the old uh, headlight in a cell from the G slash S? was a little bit lighter, uh, or would you go with the, the later version where the the fairing was incorporated?
1: You know, they're both great. I have one of each. You know, I have, I have a PD, which is later style, and I have a, an 88, you know, bare style. And I don't think there's a difference between them that's relevant to picking out which is the fourth bike to chisel on Mount Rushmore. But they are very different, and, uh, you know, someone who wants one of those should should certainly ride both of them and just see how um, how they behave differently. The the later bike is a bit heavier, but it has less uh, there's less weight on the steering, so the the bars move a bit lighter. And of course, a frame mounted fairing is always more stable. It, the change from from the 88 to 90 to the 91 to 95 is the exact same change that the whole GS line was undergoing throughout this whole time. More road oriented, more stable at high speeds. Um, and, uh, less of the enduro, but there isn't that much of a, a real market for the enduro. And BMW has definitely made the good marketing choice on where that line's going.
0: I agree. I agree. And so let me just say, I approve of your f- four choices. So very well said. And as a side note, you know, I, on my, uh, G slash S, I uh, I kind of have one part of the best of both worlds, uh, with the uh, 88 on. And I just installed um, uh, uh, early GS uh, front end uh, on my bike, and it was a huge improvement. Um, The early GS front suspension was a little bit spindly. Uh, They had some issues. I remember there were a few service bulletins on some of the spring carriers and internal parts on the early G-S models. Uh, and I kind of got fed up with it. I never really liked the front suspension anyway, and doing the swap, uh, from the next generation back to that GS is real easy. Uh, the parts are there. Uh, that's one great thing about those, uh, those airhead bikes are, you know, there are a lot of parts that are interchangeable and it really, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, really made my riding experience here in the Ozarks, you know, I'm off tarmac, uh, a large, portion of my riding time and it just really made a big difference so
1: i totally agree with you on those forks um so yeah. the, bike, the, the one bike that i told you about in the shop as a complete restoration uh this is a bike that i've done some work on over the years for the owner and i remember uh one of the one of the things i did many years ago when my shop was still at my house um was i installed a 320 millimeter rotor kit on it and uh, he's like you know i could definitely use more brakes I'm, okay we'll do this rotor kit well, what I didn't realize, I had no reason to think about it, was that he didn't have a fork brace on there. The stock fork yeah. brace, the, the cast aluminum upside down U, simply wasn't there. I didn't notice. I put these, I put this 320 millimeter rotor on. Went out for a ride, zipped down through the twisties outside my house. Got to the bottom, grabbed some front brake, and practically put me in the ditch. The oh my bike god! Bike just just swerved to one side, and I think people misunderstand why this happens. It's not that one side of your wheel is being slowed down and the other isn't. What happens is that one fork leg is being bent by the braking forces and one fork leg isn't. And so that the resulting mismatch in those, if the fork legs aren't locked together and are free to flex independently, one side ends up coming back and that turns the wheel and the wheel goes to one side. And the missing fork brace uh, was was very evidently missing at that point. and I got back uh, to the shop and I had a um I had a San Jose brace from somewhere that I sent out for powder coating and put it on, and it you know one hundred percent cured the problem. Um it was all about the fork stiffness there. but you can go and do that same test with a with a one hundred gs fork, and it's it's not going to be scary at all. I've taken the brace off off one of my bikes. And there was absolutely no noticeable difference. Those forks are just so much stronger. And so looking at this, um, looking at this G slash S that's in here for this, uh, I actually took one of my old R100 GS forks, and it's on there right now. Yep. In, our, in this case, we are making it a bit complicated by sticking with this old wheel. So there are some axle size issues that I have to deal with mm. uh, with some machine spacer. But um, it's still going to be a fantastic front end. i it yeah. to match the travel uh, that he had. And
0: uh, it's going to be great. Yeah. I, when I did it, I just, I went ahead and, you know, upgraded to the uh, Akron rim. You know, the bearing setup on uh, the paralever GS is on the front wheel so much easier uh, than on the G/S. I mean, you just pop them in, you don't have all the wedding bands and stuff like that. So um, just a, a great improvement all around. Anyone who's got a old G/S, I highly recommend that change. All right, here's kind of a controversial one. Uh, what's your take on the on the cafe custom scene, and where do you s- see those bikes uh, 10 years from now? Are they just going to be uh, piles of parts bikes that guys are stripping off, or what's your take on all that?
1: Most of them, to be perfectly honest, most of them I just don't like. I think there are too many owners out there who see the really good work done by companies like Arithmo, Sereno, and some some people in Germany and they think, oh, I can do that. And they, you know, cut all the tabs off and buy some bolt-on fiberglass cowling or you know air filter pods or something and and then what you have is something that's really not exceptional at all. So there are some of those that I think are really great and the vast majority um I think aren't. But I'm not really I'm not really opposed to the trend uh, I, I don't really think there's such a shortage of airheads that all of these bikes are, you know, historically significant for the future or something. There are always gonna be good airheads around. And you know, the people who value the tradition, they're gonna hold on to their airheads and keep them in good shape. And I think the ones that get improperly or yeah, improperly modified, um, they're probably just gonna be the donors for someone else's project. Once the original owner realizes that it's not worth Twenty five thousand (laughs) dollars, and someone should really just buy it for, you know, fifteen hundred, you know, like he did, um, and have their own turn. Um, Mechanically, everything's there. You can just go and uh, you know, go and have another crack at it under a different owner.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I even hate to bring use these three words, but. Uh, I'll just use it as a reference point. I mean, it's probably a lot in some ways like those Orange County chopper bikes that were selling for $80,000 and now, you know, you probably, probably couldn't, uh, you, you know, get somebody to... You'd be lucky to get uh, 5000 bucks for one because they were just, you know, parts piled together on a piece of crap. So um, anyway, that's, uh, that's some good insight there. You mentioned Ritmo Serino uh, in that style, and I think that's now uh 46 works and if I'm I wrote this down on my paper here I think the guy's name is Shiro Nakajima have you seen his YouTube page or uh, YouTube site with uh, what he does
1: no oh I, it's amazing it, yeah and for I, I'm just not a huge I'm not a huge YouTube person unless I'm trying to you know learn a specific procedure you know how how to change the blower motor in a Jetta or saying, you know, if I need to <laughs> yeah. just, like, you know, fix something of my own um, or you know, help a buddy figure out a problem or something, like that, I'll go to YouTube and find the, um, the video that explains it all in the least amount of time. Because the thing I don't like about videos in general is I'm totally being held hostage by the <laughs> pacing of the person who's produced the video.
0: Just give me the damn information.
1: Just give me the information. I don't need your scratchy noise over your splash screen. I just want you to tell me how I get to this thing, you know?
0: Oh, that's funny. Well, I'll just uh, add an addendum to that. Uh, I I agree with you there, but uh, to give a little bit of uh, love to the cafe scene, you mentioned Ritmo Sereno. I think he's now, as I mentioned, gone on to 46 works. Uh, The videos he does on YouTube, uh, they're... They're artist not only are they artistically pleasing meaning he does a great job with natural sounds you know it's almost like an ASMR experience uh, with what he does. You just hear the wrenches being turned and you know the work in the shop it's kind of relaxing that way but then the custom parts he does and his uh, designs are just really uh, really something else I'd encourage folks to use that. Okay last question Anton I've saved the best for last. Um, you may get a laugh out of this, uh, but again, this is something I'm curious to what everybody says. What oil do you use in your airhead?
1: Well, (laughs) up until about three years ago, I used a black drum of BMW 2050. Okay. Um, oils in general, I do not try to reinvent the wheel. Sure. Um, I buy them from BMW whenever appropriate because no one's ever going to tell me I'm wrong. But BMW stopped selling 2050 in any useful quantity for a shop. I, I think they went the direction that Porsche has gone, and they sell them in these sort of boutique metal cans now. Um, that doesn't really work in a shop environment. So uh, there is now a clean blue drum of Spectro uh, 2050 sitting over there. That is that is now my 2050. Spectro used to, as most people know, um, be a BMW supplier, you know, among several other companies. Um, they are producing motorcycle-specific oils. I never have to wonder whether their additive package is correct. And so I just pump it out of a drum of 2050.
0: There you go. Uh, and, yeah, I can see your uh, use and need for that in a, in a shop situation, too, as opposed to, you know, somebody like me who buys a case of a 12. Uh, we might have a few more uh, options there. Well, look, Anton, uh, this has been a really great visit. Uh, it's been great catching up with you today. Uh, folks want to find out more about what you do. They want to reach out to you for some service. Um, the best way to do that is Virginia Motorod Verkstat, uh, W-E-R-K-S-T-A-T-T. Or they can also find you, and I'm going to guess you've probably got an email uh, link or some way to connect with you at com. That's L-A-R-G-I-A-D-E-R.com. Do I have all that right?
1: You have that right. Uh, larger.com is going to be all of the, the tech pages and there's a link to the shop there. If people just want to skip straight to the shop, VAMotorad.com is the website for the shop. And if you spell it with only one R, you still get there.
0: Oh, okay. That's handy. And, of course, uh, ADV Rider uh, members can find you posting uh, as your own. A large dare. Yes, as yep. your own moniker. No, uh, no alias for you. So, once again, Anton, uh, great visiting with you today uh, and continued success.
1: Thank you very much. It's been fun.
0: Once again, thanks to Anton Large for joining us this week. Links to his website are in the About section of this podcast. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.